Welcome to What Happened to You, the podcast that interviews footballers of the past today about their interviews from the past. Don't worry, it will all make sense when you listen. On this episode, supported by the set pieces, we talk to former Clyde, Chelsea, Everton, Tramier Rovers, Kilmarnock, Motherwell and Scotland winger Pat Nevin about his Focus On interview for Shoot magazine from 1984-85. You can find the original interview on our Twitter feed at WHTYPod and on our dedicated channel over at The Set Pieces, www.thesetpieces.com. Full name. Patrick Kevin Francis Michael Nevin. <laughs> Birthplace and date. Uh, Birthplace is Glasgow and it's 6963. Uh, height? 5'6-ish. Uh, uh, ish. And do you still weigh 10 stone? No way. <laughs> I weigh about 11'4, 11'5 at the moment. Okay. Pat, it's a pleasure to speak to you and have you on the show. How are you doing? Um, very well, surprisingly well. And funnily enough, you asked me about my weight there, and I'm thinking, wow, I'm well over a stone heavier. But I was very young when I did that interview. I was a complete rake. I was so young. Um, and by the end of my career, I was a bit heavier than that. Um, but there's no way that you can stay that felt when you are uh, post a professional footballing career. Uh, so I keep on running. I do a lot of work. And I do a lot of hill running. So I'm not in bad nick, even though that doesn't sound so great, that weight thing. <laughs> uh, well, I've managed to dig up one of your shoot interviews here from the 84-85 season when you're, you, you're really establishing yourself as one of the key men in what was a very decent Chelsea side at the time uh, with the likes of Kerry Dixon, David Speedy, Nigel Spackman, uh, to name just a few. Uh, and here you are wearing that very natty 1980s Lecoq Sportif kit uh, in full action pose. I'd like to think possibly whipping in a dangerous cross for the aforementioned Kerry Dixon to head home. Um, and by 1985, you'd already been down in London for a couple of years since your transfer from Clyde, your previous club. Um, and I want to start off by asking you, firstly, why Clyde? How did you end up starting your career there? Uh, pure luck. Um, I'd been with Celtic as a schoolboy. Um, but I, n- I never wanted to be a football player professionally. Um, when they let me go, I kind of shrugged my shoulders and went and did my degree. And I was playing against, uh, I was playing my boys club for fun, because that's why I play football. For fun. Not for any other reason. Just because I enjoyed it. And uh, there was one time where boys club played against what we were told Clyde Reserves. So I had a bit of a laugh that day. And I uh, did a lot of dribbling, a lot of fun. And as I walked off, the Clyde manager said, fancy coming and play with us? And I said, not really. I'm doing a degree, uh, so I'm not really interested in the pro football. And he went, and, then, and instead of what a normal manager would do, he'd walk off. He went, really? That's interesting. We're part-time. You could do both. And I went, I'm still not that bothered. And he went, we'll pay you. I went, where does I sign? <laughs> because as a student, a few quid to buy records and go to gigs and things like that was absolutely up there. Um, it turned out later that I wasn't playing against Clyde Reserves. I was playing against their first team and I just scored a couple of goals <laughs> and taken the mick at half of team. And I think that was the reason why he signed me. But even then, 
it, it was Clyde that came in then, um, but I was still doing my degree, which was far more important to me at the time. So that's why Clyde, uh, just to earn a few quid and enjoy myself. Hmm. Uh, well, you were player of the tournament when Scotland's youth team won the 1982 European Championships. So I assume you did get a lot of interest from bigger clubs uh, chasing you, uh, including, as you said, your boyhood team Celtic. I assume that they probably had a look at you as well. But what made you choose Chelsea, who they were in the second division when you joined? They weren't the the, the Premier League behemoth that they are now. I specifically didn't choose Chelsea because they came in for me after a year at Clyde. And I said, no. I said, no, I'm, I'm a student, I'm studying, and I'm doing a degree in Glasgow, so no, not interested. Which kind of surprised them, I think, and surprised Clyde as well. Um, but uh, and that was it. So I carried on with Clyde for another year. And at the end of that year, uh, Chelsea came back again. And for complicated reasons, uh, I had to miss my finals. Because uh, I played in that European Youth Championship you're talking about. But I was still... I mean, I, I did. I scored a goal in the final of the European Youth Championships in Finland in Helsinki, and the next afternoon I was doing an economics exam in Glasgow because that was more important. I had to get back. So, but the next year was uh, the World Youth Championships in Mexico, and uh, I wanted to go to Mexico. Uh, so I come up with a plan, and the plan was pretty simple. Um, if I go to Mexico and I fail any of my resets because I'd have to miss all my original exams at the end of summer, I would do it at the course. Whereas if I signed for Chelsea in a two-year contract that they're offering me, well, I could afford to, you know, fail one of those exams. There you go. Um, I don't, I'd have two years' work for me. If I passed all the exams and reset, then I could always just go back. So just logic. There's nothing more than that, just logic. Um, of course, I did pass all the exams. <laughs> But I did do the two years at Chelsea and uh, those two years turned into 20. Mm. Uh, well, Shoot asked you here who your boyhood football hero was. Uh, and bear in mind, most people who answered this usually used to say uh, George Best or Bobby Moore. Um, but you said that it was your dad and your brother. Um, and I've spoken to you before and I've read about this before. But your dad used to keep you very busy with your training and practice as a kid, didn't he? Yeah. I mean, it's a very strange dichotomy that um, for someone who wasn't interested in being a professional footballer, um, it's not I didn't like it. I loved it. loved it more than anyone. Um, but the concept was quite simple. I loved playing. I loved the fitness. I loved being pretty good at it. Um, and my dad loved you know, the technical stuff of training. So I trained with him all the time from age of about five, four or five, whatever, and uh, played constantly football. My dad kept me watch all my games. Um, and that is the boys' club players, you know, whatever youth team player, all the way through my career as a Chelsea, Scotland, you name it. And it was just a really lovely thing to give it back. He thought, he didn't tell me, he thought I was good enough to be a pro. I didn't. Um, so he was important to me. Um, probably definitely the most important one. He was also a good coach. He'd learned and read all the books. At the time. Now, it's easy to get books and information. Now, it wasn't then. It's a long time ago. And he'd all read the books by Helena Herrera and people like that. He used to go down and watch shocks training in the Celtic team. Now that is an education because um, they used to have open training sessions all the time and uh, I got the benefit of that. So that was that. So I spent a huge amount of time with him. But my brothers, both of them, Thomas and Michael, but specifically Michael, I mean, I just play football together all the time. So the fact that we just play football for fun 
all the time after school. You know, if I wasn't playing, my dad would be playing football with Michael or my mates. Uh, Michael was fantastic. He was a very good player, really good player himself. And like my other brother, Tommy, both of them could have been good enough to be pros, without a doubt. But I think in the same attitude as me. They kind of thought, no, no, we've got to get the education first. That's more important. And that's what they did. The only thing is I lucked uh, back into it. They didn't. <laughs> so, uh, but it's never bothered them. And they've gone on to do very, very well in their careers. Um, we mentioned there about your um, favourite boyhood hero. But um, they also asked you in 1985 who your favourite player at that current time was. Uh, and you chose a certain Brian McClare, who was a previous guest of ours on the show. Um, and his image is adorning this profile uh, in his green and white Celtic kit. Um, he was pretty modest about himself when we spoke to him. Um, but tell us why he was such a good player. And I would probably go as far as to say quite an underrated player throughout his career. Um, well, a couple of things. Number one, I called him Brian Noflair as opposed to <laughs> Brian McClare because, you know, he, he basically just did the right things all the time. Um, and, it, you know, other what guys, at, even Celtic, like Morris Johnson or Frank McAvenny, they, they were the ones to get all the plaudits. Then you have a look at Brian's numbers. They were brilliant. You know, his goal scoring was fantastic. And he continued to do so in his time uh, at Manchester United. Um, so I knew he, he was a no-nonsense, really good player that just did all the right things with a limited amount of flair. Um, very, very opposite to myself. I admired that, uh, but that wasn't why I chose him. I chose him for two other reasons. First of all, he was my best mate in the game. That's the first reason. <laughs> mm-hmm. And the second one, I think, was the fact that we were both similarly outsiders uh, within football. He'd been studying uh, maths at Glasgow University. I'd been studying in Glasgow doing economics and accounts business studies sort of thing um, and we both had interests that were different from most of the players so it was more it's as much yes I, I rated him as a player um, but it was more the fact that it was good to have somebody else who was an outsider who felt as if he could survive in that that climate and that atmosphere um, so I admired them for that because I knew myself that it was a challenge it was quite often a challenge to you know, live within that, that sphere. When we had, we were such outsiders to it, and you had to be a very strong personality. Also, like, really liked his deadpan humour, and still do. You know, absolutely love that deadpan humour. There's a thing in Scotland, we've got a lot of dour people, you know, like, be it Andy Murray, you know, be it Zalik, be it others. And honestly, you go on forever, the amount of dour Scots that I find funny. Jim, a guy called Jim Trainer, which many people know is a, a what's with angels and I said, but Jim made my funniest, dourest person, honestly. I like dour people. It's like, uh, I think the daddy of them all is Chick Murray. And Scots understand that humour. To be fair, a lot of English people don't get it. <laughs> and they never got to Andy Murray for years and years and years. They get it now. And Brian is, he's up there. I mean, Deglish, there's another one. There's lots of them. And I love that door humor and uh, Brian Brian's is good. Brian's is really good. I like that. So good player. But I wouldn't always pick my favorite player because they played. The thing you have to understand about that interview, my answers won't be the answers given for the reasons that most people give the answers. My answers will be given for different reasons. Mm. Uh, well, speaking of Brian McClare and 
possibly dodgy answers and, and there was nobody more famous at giving uh, strange answers than Brian for these but uh, and there's definitely a whiff of McClare about this one uh, that you gave they asked you about your favorite other sports uh, and to which you've answered trampolining and high diving was that true or is that just you having a bit of fun this is going to shock you true really <laughs> I did I, uh, I wasn't trampolining when I was at school I was also a distance runner um but I was a big swimmer and uh, I, I did like the somersaulting and the diving. Um, I was kind of into it. My family were all into that. Everywhere I go in the world to this day, I will find the, the highest dive off the highest cliff and I will do it. I just like doing it. I like the thrill of it. I like the buzz of it. Um, but also thought it was quite funny. Um, it's funny you ask about this interview. Um, this is almost straight for me, this one. <laughs> I remember there's another one, whether it was match, shoot, goal, can't remember. And I said, I can't do that anymore. That bores me. I, I really couldn't be bothered with it. And I said, I'll do it as long as I choose the interviewer. So the next one I did, I chose the interviewer. And the interviewer was me. <laughs> so it was a very, very surreal one I did after that. But this was an early one. And because it was an early one, I accepted it. I wonder if you remember anything about your most memorable match to that point, because it's, it's not the European Championship final. Uh, or a big game for Chelsea. Uh, it was a 1-1 draw between Clyde and Stranraer in 1982 for the reasons that it was a great game played in a lively atmosphere. Of all the games that you've ever played since then, have you got even the slightest memory of that one? I didn't play in it. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that was the joke. Uh, no, the story behind that is I, was, I always wondered if anyone would bother backside to go and find out about that game because I wrote it down. Um, if they'd have bothered to go and find out that was the one game I missed that season mm. I had a bit of a cold and I was dodgy whether I could or couldn't make that game and I decided not to instead I went to see Celtic Rangers <laughs> <laughs> at Celtic Park and that is how embarrassing is that I actually instead of playing for the professional team I wanted to go and see a Celtic Rangers game because I was a Celtic fan in those days and uh, I went along and Celtic won and it was a brilliant game, and uh, maybe the right choice. I mean, to be honest, I did have a cold, and I wasn't feeling very well, and I probably wouldn't have done myself justice. But in reality, that was a Mickey take answer. I didn't even play, and I didn't even go. Um, I think the the decision was pretty clear there. Was was the Clyde game? Was it at Shawfield or was it? To no, no, step it was all up? the way down to Stranraer. That was a big that was a big part of it as well. Because mm. I'd have had to be in the next day for obviously doing my studies. Um, because obviously it was part-time. No, I, I, I don't really know. I, I tell myself that I wasn't fit to play. But in reality, if Celtic Rangers hadn't been playing that night, I might have been fit to play. <laughs> mm. uh, well, they've asked you your nickname here, uh, and this is the first time I've heard this one, but you were called Nifty. Always. Um, it's a very, it's an unusual thing. I, I rarely get called it in England, uh, but it's cool. That was my nickname. Um, when I went back to Kilmarnock, I was nifty again. Um, oddly enough, it's a family nickname. So my big brother, Tommy, my older brother, Tommy, he was nifty. And then uh, Michael was nifty's wee brother, and I was nifty's other wee brother. And then when we got older, Michael took the name nifty. <laughs> he got nifty, and then I got it. And it was the whole thing. It was nifty's dad, nifty's mum. It was all just nifty. Mm. And that was what I was called all the time. So all my friends, my closest friends always, called me that so that was the nickname I had but it didn't follow me through my career because I didn't tell anyone that was my name just it was a real nickname that 
it comes whether you want it or not. So where I grew up, that, that was just what I was called. But then the entire family were called, well, the three of us were called Nifty. Well, the six of us in the end, in fact, felt sorry for my both sisters who got Nifty's big sister and Nifty's wee sister. <laughs> um, okay, so now uh, your biggest disappointment is a very intriguing answer and is as relevant now as it was in 1985, possibly even more so. Uh, you said that it was discovering the business of football from the inside. Yeah, um, I'm kind of happy with that answer. I'm really happy with that answer because um, I only, like, I underline, I did it because I love doing it. But when I seen the business side of it, and uh, particularly the way people didn't act morally uh, within the business side of it, kind of sickened me a wee bit. I, didn't, I just didn't like it. To be fair, as the years went by, I'd have, I would have adapted that answer. And when I was asked that question later, the question would have been, what do you like most about football? And it would have been playing. What do you like least about it? Everything else. Because I had no interest in the fame. Um, you know, if you make, make a few quid, fair enough, but I wasn't interested in big wealth. Uh, all the other sides of it, which I thought were superficial, I couldn't be bothered with. So I didn't do all the flash, fancy club, nightclubs and all that sort of stuff. Didn't have any interest. Um, and I found that a bit tiresome. So I, I'm maybe the exactly the wrong person to, to interview for a shoot magazine because they want the inside of that side of it. And I'm, I didn't like it, you know, and that never changed. Uh, and I found uh, the other sides of it quite tiresome. So. When I, I see some certain in-depth things about players and things that are, you know, I can tell that are just fake and are sales, I find that fabulously tiresome then. So if I thought that then, God knows how I feel about it now because it's so much more now. The other side, the business side of it, then got much, much uglier because I became chairman of the PFA. And then there was a period where I was chief executive of a model and I, and I got to see the insides of the workings of you know, the committee structures within all sides of the business of football. And uh, although there were good sides, particularly with the PFA, um, the downsides of our, you know, the fact that money seemed to trump absolutely everything. That I just I just didn't like that very much. But then that's me. I understand why people did. Some people like money. Some people like power. I just like having fun playing football. Okay. This is where we're going to move away from the football for a little bit. Uh, and let's look at your hobbies, which were reading listening to music and watching good films. Uh, and the music side of things is something that you've become known for possibly as much as football over time. Um, now you didn't name your favorite musicians in this interview because there were so many, uh, but you did say you'd be able to hear them on John Peel's radio show. So um, if you think back, cast your mind back then to 1985, pick out a few of the, the, the bands or the, or the artists that you were really into at that in that year. Um. I'm still fanatical about Cocteau Twins. Um, most of them come out of 4 AD. Um, New Order were still a band that I, I liked a lot. And I'd love Joy Division. And the fall, you know, that you can ask me that in 81, and you can ask me that today, and I'll still say the fall. Um, but there was a lot of other bands at the time. There was a great scene in Glasgow, and a lot of the bands coming out of Glasgow were pretty fantastic. Um, but the Peel Show was a real learning thing, you know, that you go on every night. And I'm talking to you today, and I found 10 new bands yesterday, 10, that I love, I'd never heard before. Um, just I was I had a day where I was on a computer, I was, I was writing something, um, and I put a variety of places where I find music in the background, 
and I just let it play. And I just happened upon this, uh, this, this podcast that I hadn't heard before. And to get 10, 10 that you'd never come across before, and considering someone like me who's massively keen in a lot of new music, it was absolutely brilliant. So, uh, you know, it changes all the time. So I didn't mention bands, but I would mention Peely because every week it'd be something new, John Peel show. But the ones I mentioned there, they were, they were quite staples. But I would say in 85, was that the year of um, Soul Mining by the I, I met around about that time. I loved that. Absolutely adored that at that, at that time. But there was a lot of great music around. Um, and you have to dig a wee bit deeper in that. But there's still a lot of good stuff around. So it is still one of my absolute passions. Um, but it's up there. And I do a lot of DJing as well. And, and always have done. Um, it's just that nobody knew about it then. Um, and I have to blame Twitter for ruining that little secret in my life because it was nice and quiet until I was doing a festival down south. I was DJing at that, and I hadn't realised that Twitter had taken off. And the next day, the world seemed to know that I was a DJ. Uh, and I'd been doing it for decades before that, um, but that was my secret out, which was a bit of a shame because I quite like having a, a different life away from football, and I quite like it being secret. <laughs> Well, how about changing your um, your stage name from DJ to, to Pat from Pat Nevin to DJ Nifty, and then at least you might have a bit of uh, bit of disguise for yeah. a wee while longer. I, I, it wasn't a deliberate. I don't want anyone to know it because I've just no desperation for any fame from it. I did it because it was good fun, and I do it still because it is good fun. Um, but it, people then say that becomes the only thing you get asked about in interviews, and you know, but you know, they might as well ask me about my love of going to art galleries or theatre or, you know, as you say, cinema, you know, all things that I think make me normal. <laughs> you know, we're just normal. Normal Absolutely. people do these things. It's all right. Um, well, we mentioned John Peel there, and I was, I was digging around uh, just for a few bits on the internet um, before um, preparing this episode, uh, and I found a clip um, of John introducing a band called The Tractors, uh, and their song, Pat's, Pat Nevin's Eyes, which I'd never heard before. I mean, you, surely you must own a copy of it. There's a great story behind that. Um, I think there's been about five or six tracks written about me, which was really good. There's some really good ones. One particularly good one by Vinnie Riley called Shirt Number 7. Uh, Vinnie from Tourette Column, who became, in time, a great friend. But the tractors had written a song, and it's basically vicious towards me. It's hateful towards me. Uh, and I've never heard it. And uh, anyway, but I, Peely had played it, and I, I I went to see a band one night, and the guys for the tractors were there, and I was like, they might be feeling Liverpool, I think. Anyway, I hadn't heard the song, and uh, somebody introduced me, and I went, oh, you're the guys that done that song, and uh, they, were, they were a bit shifty, and I went, I said, what's your style? And they went, no, you wouldn't know, it was a little bit like, and they started naming these bands. And I said, and I, we were slightly surprised to being totally shocked to find that a, I not only knew every band they said, but started telling them some stuff they should listen to. My knowledge of music was a wee bit better than they thought. I think what they thought was that I was, um, it was a show. I really wasn't fanatical about this, this uh, underworld of music that I was that I talked about a bit. And uh, half an hour into the conversation, they, as a group, apologised profusely and said, we got that wrong. We're really, really sorry. 
And I said, don't worry, it's just a laugh, man. So if it's a negative song, it's a negative song. Everyone's dead nice about me. It's nice if somebody's saying something slightly negative. But they were unbelievably apologetic. <laughs> but I told them not to worry. It was absolutely fine. Uh, well, that kind of leads me on to the next question, actually, because um, back in the 80s, footballers had a, a certain image um, from the outside, at least, as you say, uh, having different tastes outside of the game, such as um, music, films, art, whatever it might have been. Um, but how did how did the footballers themselves react to let to, to yourself, a man of other tastes, let's say that from the norm. Um, and then also on the flip side, and this ties into what you just said there about the tractors, how did people from the music scene, bands and, and so on, react to seeing a footballer of that particular day as well? Because being a Chelsea footballer in the 80s when the hooligan problem was, you know, was rife and they probably had a certain perception of footballers as well. How did it feel having one foot in each world, if you like, and, and how did the reactions differ between the two sides? It was interesting. I, I felt much more at one in the music world where um, most of my mates, most of my best friends are musicians. Um, so Simon Raymond from Cocktails now runs Bella Union Records, but um, he was my best mate at the time. Um, Peely became a very good friend. Um, you know, so all my friends were users, you know, and I'd go to see bands all the time. And I think they just realised by the way I looked I wasn't one of that lot. I was one of the third lot, as it were. <laughs> so the musical side, it was fine. It was never a problem. It was that was comfortable. Um, so that that was where I felt at home. Uh, the other side of the football side was interesting because, yes, within football culture, you will get wound up for being different, and you will trying to you know take this, to not to put too fine a point on it. The difference is, I come for Easter House. I don't care. <laughs> You're not going to get me. You, you can wind me up all you like. There was a nickname I had with the Chelsea players for a number of them. Roy Weirdo. It's a weirdo I was for a while. <laughs> I said, you don't get it, you lot. I'm the normal one. You lot are all the weird ones. <laughs> and, and I so absolutely believed it. And I actually still do. Um, but it was never said with nastiness. And because I was a strong enough character to stand up to them, and had belief in what I believed in, what I thought was right. It was never, it was very, very little negativity for being a different person or an outsider. I didn't dislike footballers. There was some of them who's, who became great friends and some of them who had brilliant humour. We didn't share a lot of other things. I'm not many of them did. Um, so I didn't find it difficult. Um, I I'd kind of played football as a kid and been around footballers. They were all right, they're fine, some of them are friends, but as I often say to people, how many of your workmates do you hang about with at night? Think about it. Do you really do that? And most people will say, actually, no, I don't. And that's just what I felt. They were workmates, I got on quite well with them. I was okay in there. Some of them I didn't like particularly, um, but that was just my work. I think you've got this from the outside, it's this band of brothers thing and we all do everything together. And some clubs have got a bit of that about them. Um, I, I just didn't feel that way that I had to be inside their pockets all the time. Um, because some of the things that some of them had interest in, I didn't share that interest. Um, I, I because I've just written a book and it'll be out in May. And a large part of it is explaining this concept of how I felt about it and how I got through it. 
and then how I played with it and had a bit of a laugh with it because I, I also happened to love ballet. And there was one night I can remember going to see the ballet and one of my friends was the principal ballerina at the Royal Ballet down at um, Covent Garden. So I was standing in the wings and she was, a, she was the lead and she's the principal. And I'm all these ballerinas dancing by me to Swan Lake and I'm standing in the wings and I'm thinking, this is just the most amazing thing in the world. And it's joyous to be that close to them and see what they're doing and see how they're dancing. And some of them are quite pretty as well. Um, and I wanted to go and work the next day. Do you know what I done, lads, last night? Do you know what? You're not going to get away with it at a football club. It's just going to get, what, Bali? Mm. And then after I thought, nah, sod that. I'm just going to say it to wind them up. And that's what I did. So I think I played on the fact that they had no idea where I was coming from. And they also realised very quickly, they couldn't wind it up, so I didn't care. Um, okay, favourite actors and actresses. Uh, you didn't pick the, the most common answers that we see in these things, which are usually Clint Eastwood and Meryl Streep. Uh, you chose uh, Tom Conti, Natasha Kinski, and Claire Grogan, who I suspect still makes the hearts of Scots men of a certain age flutter just at the mere mention of her name. Um, yeah, we talked, we're just at the time, I've probably just seen a couple of Tom movies, and Tom's a lovely actor. Um, but, you know, there's, there's hundreds, there's loads. I would probably go for, in reality, I would, the female actress would probably be Kate Hepburn now. Um, so, yeah, I, mean, I love Catherine Hepburn. I always did love Catherine Hepburn. But, you know, uh, and Claudia Schiffer. And, you know, not Claudia Schiffer. I'm not saying Claudia Schiffer. I didn't mean Claudia Schiffer. Um, what's her name? Who played Catherine again? Michelle Pfeiffer. Sorry. Mm -hmm. uh, Michelle was fabulous. I love She's a fantastic actress. I mean, um, but a lot of the classics, classical actors as well, I would have considered as well. Um, but Tom was you know, just a nice guy, and I kind of like nice guys. Uh, Kinski was, because she was unbelievably pretty, let's be honest, uh, that was part <laughs> of it. And, uh, and Claire was a nod to the music, it was a bit, I liked the images quite a lot, and of course, uh, the films that she'd done from Gregory Skull, et cetera, were really good. And uh, it was really good, because Claire and I became good friends anyway, afterwards, so, you know, it was nice to, to mention nice people. Uh, well, shoot also asked you about your home, um, and you said that you had a flat not far from Chelsea, Chelsea Stanford Bridge ground, which I can imagine would be worth an absolute fortune these days. Yeah, had I owned it then, yeah. <laughs> I was letting it. <laughs> no, I, I, I started off in Hell's Court in a three-bedroom. I was played a year there, like my first year at Chelsea, and it was in a bed set, which is for you. I had to get it off. Uh, and it was only a bed set, and I stood there for about a year because um, I wasn't paid very much. And um, in second year, I moved to a one-bedroom flat in Pimlico, but I couldn't really afford the rent. So I shot a flat shop uh, with a guy called Adrian Thrills. And Adrian was uh, a writer for the NME. And, uh, you know, one night he would have the bed and I would have the sofa. And then the next night I would have the bed and he would have the sofa. And that was my second season at Chelsea. I made sure I had the bed, you know, the night before the game kind of thing. Um, but it was a nice place. I wanted to stay in central London. You know, I'm a city boy. Uh, my loves and passions were all around in the city, so I liked living nearby. But the fun thing about that is when I did that interview, I was probably in Pimlico by that point. Uh, I got the bus to games. I got 22 along Kings Road quite often. Uh, then I got a car. Um, 
but I had no compunction of getting a tube of the bus or when I was in Ells Court, I used to walk to the games. So I was Chelsea's player of the year and I walked to the game and then walked back. <laughs> 20, it was not a 20 minute walk. Why would you do anything else? Well, so, exactly. Uh, it was, I know everyone thought it was a bit weird, but I just, I just wanted to be normal, you know, and what's more, why have a big fancy car? And I couldn't drive that thing anyway. When you could walk up and down and get the tubes everywhere, I couldn't really see it. Um, that stopped when somebody pulled a knife on me one night. Um, <laughs> wow. Well, I no, mean, no, you I mentioned. See, I thought it was funny. I come from Easter House. That's normal. <laughs> <laughs> Just a standard greeting from that part of Glasgow. Uh, there's a long story involved in that, but again, that's, that's, that's for the book, sadly. <laughs> yeah. uh, well, you mentioned about getting a car there. You actually ducked out of telling us what type of car you had in this interview uh, because you said you were going to be getting something better soon. Um, what what was it that you had at the time? Because I'm, I'm assuming it wasn't a Del Boy three-wheeler. No, no. Um, what had happened is that I'd, I'd gone to a game and instead of, as far as, and instead of, um, go home in the team bus, I got a tube because that's what I did. And my sports fan pulled a knife on me and uh, anyway, I thumped him and got off. <laughs> and the next day I bought a car. I just bought a cheap car and had the old plates and had to learn to drive. So it was a Datsun 160Y uh, and it was blue, and which was handy for Chelsea. Um, but I just went and got, I'd, I'd gone to a guy called Mickey Droy, he used to play for Chelsea and his name was a car dealer. And uh, who became a great friend as well. And uh, I just said, look, I need a car, I need wheels uh, to get myself, you know, uh, off the streets at the moment. Um, and he said, look, this is trustworthy. You learn, you can bash it and thump it. Just let me drive in this. And then when you uh, let me drive and pass your test, come back to me and we'll get you the car you want. So that's what I did. I had the Datsun 160Y for about six months. And then I bought the car I really wanted. And... Uh, I'm just not interested in anything like, you know, I don't want a flash house or a fancy car, generally a flash anything. But I did want this car because uh, I liked classic cars. So I bought an old MGB GT in British Racing Green. Um, and it was a classic car even then. Um, so that's what, that's the car that I actually then did buy. And I called it Green. Uh, oh, and it was named after Green Gartside from Scritty Polite. Not, not even after the colour of the car, because that was green. It was after Green Gartside from Scritty Polite. I called it green. Right, let's get back to the football. And your ambitions for 1985 and beyond were to improve and improve some more. Now, Pat, you were a terrific player, but one thing you certainly needed to do some work on was your penalty taking. Uh, and I think you know where I'm going with this. Um 84-85, from when this season was, uh, when this interview was taken, was the season of that now infamous penalty kick you took against Manchester City in a milk cup tie at the bridge. Um, you know you're never going to live that down, don't you? Um, it was actually me that put it on at the night. Because <laughs> I liked the idea of laughing at it. Um, I'd had a long, large, large part of my career, the vast majority of my career, where I was kind of, quite lauded and because of the style of player, people were ultra positive towards me. Um, and it, it got a wee bit boring. And we played this game against uh, Man City. We're 4-0 up. I'd been given the man of the match. There was a minute to go and a penalty kick. And I'd been practicing these one-step penalties. 
Now, if you look at it now, lots of people do this sort of thing, but this was kind of novel then. Anyway, it wasn't muddy when I'd been practicing. Anyway, I take the penalty. Harvey Leach is the keeper. I walk away from it, pissing myself laughing. I think it's the funniest thing ever. Manager finds me for laughing because I lost, lost it. What I've always, I sometimes might have come across as a wee bit um, earnest, sometimes in interviews. But as you can tell, I'm not. I just thought it was hilarious. And I loved laughing at me, which you can be silly and laugh at yourself. Life is just silly. So you use the phrase, live it down. It is so far wrong, it's unbelievable. <laughs> I thought it was hilarious. I'm actually really proud of it. Um, and what happened was I was doing a show, and nobody, it's been seen at a time, but you know, neither here nor there. I scored lots of other goals and played important games. Um, but I was doing a show with Colin Murray for Radio 5 Live. And I said to Colin, you need to get this on the show. It's very funny. And the commentary is really funny as well. And I played it to Colin and Colin said, that is the funniest thing ever. So Colin started playing it every week. And I said, well, we need to get it online. I'll, so when YouTube became a possibility, we put it, I put it up and got it. Well, I didn't put it up. I got somebody to put it up. Um, so in actual fact, this famous penalty wasn't actually that famous. I deliberately made it famous <laughs> because I thought it would be really funny. Um, and it is it's really quite funny. I, I will admit recently that there, um, there's a YouTube clip, which if you want to see my skills and how I played, it's under Pat Nevin skills or something with some great music behind it, then you can see some good stuff. It's probably something like 400 views. But if you look at that penalty, you get about half a million. Um, should I be upset about that? No, because I don't take myself that seriously. Well, I think as well, the penalty kind of, you know, makes that game synonymous with you. And I think it, Kerry Dixon scored four goals in that game, didn't he? Yeah, and I, I, I laid a couple of them on from it was me that got the penalty, all that sort of stuff. Um, it's neither here nor there. Um, it's a wee bit of shame for Kerry, <laughs> but you know, there's lots. Kerry had lots and lots of things that he actually was really famous for. To be fair, I didn't give a shit about that penalty because it was a cup game and we were ahead and we went through. I couldn't care less. I had a penalty for Scotland. Had I missed that, I'd have been fuming. Had I ever missed a penalty in a shootout or an important game that cost us a point, I'd have been really, really upset about that. But this, nah, didn't care. Nevin, oh dear, oh dear, I don't believe it. I hope I'm not being too unkind to Pat Nevin, a player of undoubted quality, but it has to be the worst penalty I've ever seen at this level of football. So you moved on from Chelsea, uh, went to Everton, of course, uh, then Tramia, and then back up to Scotland with Kilmarnock and Motherwell. Uh, if you pick out a time in your career where you think that that's when I was at my happiest, not necessarily at your best, but your happiest, uh, where would you say it was? My year at Kelly was phenomenal, really brilliant fun, uh, a real joy there, a brilliant bunch of people. It was nice to be back home. Um, but it was just the people I was working with, um, the players. I probably get more friends from my team at Kelly than maybe all my other clubs put together. Um, I just, Gary Holt's a great mate, and Dylan Kerr's a great mate. Uh, I was just really happy there. My dad didn't need to do an 800 round, mile round trip to go and watch me at last, which was a good thing. Um, so maybe I was really, really happy there. But most of the places I was, I was generally quite happy the first few two or three years, generally, wherever I was. Um, 
I probably played my best. I was probably at my very best at, at uh, Tranmere. I played my best football there. Um, so I, I did improve and got to that level. And I was really at the peak of my career there, which is kind of odd because by that time, uh, the, Prem, the Premier League had started and I'd left Everton. And I had a chance to go to other clubs like uh, Galatasaray and a variety of clubs. But I'd been on loan at uh, Tranmere to get myself fit for, the, for Scotland. And I was, I realised... Why do I play football? Remember why you do it. You do it for the joy of it. And that couple of months at Tranmere that I'd asked to go and loan because I thought the manager and I didn't go on at Everton, the new manager. Um, I, I kind of found that love of it again. It was brilliant. So I had an amazing time um, at Tranmere. But it's quite often the case with a lot of players. People don't realise this because they're too busy watching only the very top players that spend 10 years at one club. That's really unusual. It's quite often the case you get a two, maybe three-year stint at a club, and it's brilliant because that's the manager that brought you in, and he likes your style, and he likes what you do. And then another guy comes in, and almost every club in my career, the next guy came in, didn't matter what I did, I was hoofed. So mm. you just kind of shrugged your shoulders and got on with it. Um, but they were happy. They definitely those periods were incredibly happy. The first couple of years at Chelsea, Certainly the first couple of years at Tranmere were absolutely brilliant. Um, but that Kelly year was just an utter joy. The what happened to you time machine is all yours. And you've got one chance to dish out one piece of advice to the Pat Nevin from this 1985, 1985 interview. What is it? Lighten up. <laughs> <laughs> I, now, the reason being, um, I didn't trust the media. And... They asked me, I knew they were twisting words and they, I knew they were kind of, um, they were putting me in a pigeonhole. And so when I talked, I was very deliberate and quite quiet and very, very measured. And they never got to know me. They never got to know what I was really like. Um, I think at a time I just, I didn't like that idea because when I did an interview, I wanted there to be a reason. So... Um, I would end up, they would ask me about football and I would move it on to talking about what I thought was a problem of racism within football. And it was quite unusual. I was the only one doing it at the time. So that immediately made it a lot heavier and a lot more earnest sounded. But I would have allowed the humour and the fun to come across a little bit more. And maybe that was the one thing that I would probably change because if you see some interviews from me from back then, if you ever, oh my God, do I sound serious? <laughs> and, you know, I, I actually wasn't particularly serious. Well, well, serious when you had to be, but I think the fun side has to be allowed to be shown a little bit more. Well, Pat, as always, it's been entertaining. Thanks very much for coming on and taking us through this old shoot interview and down memory lane. Um, before we sign off, though, um, again, you mentioned earlier already the book that you've got coming out, which is on the 20th of May. Is that right? Yeah, I guess uh, we kind of, it's been put back and it's nearly a year since I've finished it. Mm -hmm. um, so I was, I've been keen to write it for a long time. Um, and I just sat down when the Somebody annoyed me about something. I'm not easily annoyed. And four hours, five hours later, I'd done 10,000 words. And three weeks later, I'd finished the first draft. And, they, and I, did, I didn't ask any publishers. I didn't go to anyone. I just wrote this thing that I wanted to write. 
because uh, I love writing and I love the creativity of it. And uh, that's what I did. And when I'd finished it, I then thought, hmm, somebody might want to publish this. So uh, I kind of took it to a, a friend of mine who has an agent. She's a friend of mine. And uh, she just gave it to this company and they went, yeah, I like that. <laughs> and that is it's kind of very much not the way books are done. And it's, for anyone who's expecting a normal football book, trust me, you're not going to get it. <laughs> it's not going to be like that. Um, but it's very much, is absolutely an outsider view of what it's like inside it. Um, and although there'll be many, many books written about it, um, and mine's, I don't know if it means any better or any worse, I have no idea, that's up to the reader. Um, but it absolutely is an outsider view who happens to be slap bang in the middle of it. And maybe my favorite part of writing it was the surreality of me seeing the things that they thought were normal, that I thought were mental. And that was the joy. That was, and that's where a lot of the humor comes from within the book as well. So uh, it, was, it was great fun writing it. And it's not stopped me. I've just kept on going. I'm, you know, I've, I'm, I'm not going into too much detail, but there's plenty more <laughs> to come. Brilliant. Well, that's going. To, that's called the accidental footballer, isn't it? Which is a great title. It is. It's accidental football. I'm supposed to know where it's coming out. You can actually pre-order now on Amazon and do all that sort of stuff and sign copies and all that sort of thing. Um, and you can you can do that online just now. I'm kind of really hoping that you know by the summer it's opened up a wee bit. It can be in bookshops, and I can go to festivals and I can go to signings and talk to people because that's what Brilliant. I like to do. Um, Brilliant. Yeah. If you're asking Good. about it. Um, yeah. A lot of people asking about it. And that's what I do. Fantastic. Well, yes, let's keep our fingers crossed for that. Uh, keep our fingers crossed that the book goes well, which I'm sure it will, because as you said, your story will be a, a great antidote, I suppose, to the usual footballer's autobiography. Yeah, it'll be different. <laughs> Fantastic. Cheers, Pat. Absolute pleasure. No problem at all. Thanks for listening to What Happened to You. You can find us across all the main podcast platforms, so please don't forget to subscribe. For updates about future guests and new episodes, follow us on Twitter at WHTYPod. For extra content related to What Happened to You, including the original interviews that inspired this episode, visit our friends The Set Pieces at www.thesetpieces.com and follow them on Twitter at The Set Pieces. We'll be back again soon, so until next time, goodbye.